0: Well, it um, is great to be back with you uh, after a, a week away, and I hear Jerry did an excellent job, and so thank you, Jerry, for um, filling in, and um, we, uh, we, we went to California, and, and uh, earlier—what's uh, that? Oh, I thought it was for me. It's not. Um, uh, earlier this year, we bought a minivan, and so we figured, uh, since we joined the world of minivandom— that we should probably uh, take that bad boy on a road trip. And so, hey, um, Eric, will you bring the lights up at, in the house so I can see these beautiful... There you are. Hi. Hi. So we decided we were going to take a road trip uh, as a family to California. I was doing a wedding, um, and uh, we decided as part of that trip we'd take the whole family and all and head out there. Um, it, was, it was a short 1,072 miles. Sweet Lord, I mean, we felt every single one of those miles. I mean, it was the type of thing where, and I don't know, kids have this like sixth sense where um, right when you get in the car and you, the doors close and we got out and we got on the highway and, and you know that feeling of, of just getting the house packed up and all sorts of chaos surrounding leaving that when you finally get rolling, it's that proverbial feeling of, oh. Yes. And no sooner than we let out that, oh yes, thank you, sigh, a chirp from the back seat came. Do you guys have a snack? Can we get a, we get a snack? And so we, we, over the course of the vacation, we perfected the throw of the goldfish bag into the back seat where the, the motor skills aren't fine tuned. Whoa, speaking of motor skills, um, not fine tuned enough to catch it yet. And so you have to bank it off of something. Now, now the head isn't the best choice, although it works (laughs) that you bank it off the chest and it lands right in their hands. And so we, we, we did that. And then, you know, it starts with goldfish and it evolves into, can I get a drink? And all of a sudden my wife, Kelly turns into like a i um, airline stewardess in our van. You know, she's back and forth getting things to take to the back seat. And eventually, my son says, "Can can I get a sandwich?" And I'm like, "Does it look like we have a full-service deli up here? Like, yeah, sure. Would you like turkey or roast beef? You know what? Anything else I can get for you, Ethan? You know." Um, and so we've been on the road about 20 minutes. And I hear from the back seat. This is a. Um, I think this is. A, a father ritual that every dad who's taken their kids on a trip goes through at some point. And so, from the back seat, uh, my four and a half year old um, says this line. That my guess is, if you've taken a family vacation, you've heard before. Um, he said, "Are we, there are we there yet, uh, son? We have 1,052 miles to go. You're gonna want to remain seated." buckled up and it'd benefit you to just be quiet and enjoy the ride. All right. Luckily, I'm not sarcastic with my kids. So I didn't say all of that. Um, but I thought about that as I looked, as I looked at our passage that's already on our screen, um, that I looked at our passage this morning uh, that we're going to study in first Samuel chapter 24. And I noticed that, that I asked that question to God a lot too. Hey, God, God, are we there yet? Are we there yet? God, because it seems like you're taking a little bit of time to accomplish the things that I would hoped you would accomplish. God, it almost seems like you have all of eternity to wait and you're just taking your time. I mean, you ever been there with God where you just wanted to cry out, are we there yet? And anytime time you ask, ask the question, are we there yet? You automatically know the answer. I mean, if you're asking, you're asking because you're not there yet. So I could have said back to Ethan, listen, you're in your car seat. You're not there yet, buddy. I'll let you know when you are. And the way you'll know is your legs will be on the ground. But how many of us interact with God like that, where we just, we, we cry out to him. God, are we there yet? God, I've been, I've been waiting, God, for you to come through. God, I've been waiting for the, for the healing to come. It hasn't come. God, are we, are we there yet? Are we getting, are we at least getting closer. God, I've been waiting on on the job to come through, and and mean, we read your prayer requests every week, and as a staff, we pray through them, and we know there's some of you that have been waiting for a long time. God, are we are we there yet? God, is a relationship ever going to come? Is he ever going to ask me? Are we there? Are we there yet? God, are you going to provide the, the child that we've been praying for? God, are we, are, you, are we there yet, God? And there's a lot of our life, isn't there, that we spend in waiting. We spend in waiting. And, and we wrestle with this question and we ask God this question, God, are we there yet or are we at least getting close? And you and I, oftentimes, we have this decision that we, we have to make. In that waiting, are we going to... Be the type of people who trust God in the in-between. Will we trust him in the in-between or will we take things into our own hands and make our own way? God, will we trust you to provide and satisfy and be good or will we just go and get the job done on our own? See, I've thought back over the course of my life this week as I've looked at the life of David and this opportunity that he has. And I think that, that I'm programmed the way many of you are, and it's this idea that that next is better. Like whatever happens next is better than now, and so let's get there asap. You know, let's get let's get moving. And and I love progress, and I love making headway. And so there's this subtle temptation. God, am I going to trust you in that desire, or am I going to just make a way on my own? And see, many of us will, or have been faced with the decision will we compromise just a little will we compromise just a little to get to the place that we feel like God is leading us or or will we wait and trust him see i, I want to show you from the life of david what this looks like today if you have a bible turn to first samuel chapter 24 Today, we're going to talk about how we know where God is leading us and how we follow him and how we wait well as we do both of those things. Because oftentimes, the Christian life, a life of following Jesus, involves waiting. Involves waiting. Now, let me catch you up about where we are in the life of Saul, or uh, Saul, Paul, David. If you haven't been here over the last few weeks. David's life is a tug of war. I mean, it's a series of high highs and extremely low lows. And at the point we pick up this story, David's at a pretty big low. I mean, he starts off as this shepherd boy is anointed King of Israel, but has to wait to take the throne in between times. He slays a giant Goliath gets elevated to be one of the chief um, soldiers in the army of Israel grows in such popularity that he becomes a big threat to the functioning king of Israel, Saul. And Saul's a little bit crazy, and he throws you know the occasional spear at David over dinner party. You know how that is. And so David's on the run for years. David is on the run. Uh, he's hiding from Saul, trying to keep a fairly low profile at times, uh, hiding from Saul. And he has this encounter that we read about today as he's hiding from Saul First, samuel chapter 24 and the scriptures will be up on our screen uh, That we're going through this morning Starting in verse 1 reads like this After saul returned from pursuing the philistines. He was told david's in the desert of engedi Just a quick time out is right along the shore of the dead sea And it is desert I mean if you look at pictures of it, it's desolate. Nothing grows there. And so David is physically in the desert, but David's also, I think, spiritually, emotionally, physically he's he is in the desert. He's dry. God is God is using this time where he's on the run to shape him, to mold him, to make him into the man of God that he's calling him to be. And and here this is just for free this morning. If you're in the desert. God might just be shaping you too, molding you, using that time to chisel off some of those rough edges and make you more into the image of his son, Jesus. It says so Saul took 3000 chosen men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Now, evidently, there's a lot of goats that gathered there and he came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went to relieve himself. Now, seriously, I'm not making this up. I'm not. I, I, didn't, I didn't add that in. Your Bible has it, too. I guarantee it. And this is one of the ways I think we can trust that the Bible is the word of God. I mean, there's details in here that you just wouldn't include. Otherwise, if it didn't happen, there's no reason to include. And Saul went to go to the bathroom in a cave. The ancient outhouse, the cave which makes you wonder why David's hiding in there. whole nother story, okay? whole nother story. And it says, this is the day he went into the cave to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. I mean, if you're a a Hollywood movie maker, this is the stuff that great movie scenes are made of, isn't it? I mean, David's hiding in the back corner of the cave with all of his men. And Saul, you see Saul's army come through the valley and all 3,000 strong militant men stop there. Saul goes to do the only thing Saul does alone. Walks right up to David. David sees the silhouette of Saul walk into the cave. And he knows it's Saul because Saul's taller than anybody else in the whole nation. And this is the moment, isn't it? I mean, where where David kills Saul and cuts off his head and goes and stands before Saul's army and says, You're my army now! Because your king is dead. And I'm now your king. You right? Isn't this the hand of God? You can't you can't orchestrate things any better than this if you're David, can you? And it says he just cut off a little piece of his robe. Like verses five through Seven complete the thought for us and it says afterward David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe and he said to his men The lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master The lord's anointed or lift a hand against him for he's the anointed of the lord Now he had to get some strange looks from his men Wait We've been waiting for this this is the moment that where where everything perfectly aligned. This is like the business deal that just came out of nowhere, the relationship that just happened and it is, it's just it's perfect. It, it has to be God, doesn't it? And with these words, David rebuked his men, did not allow them to attack Saul and Saul left the cave and went on his way. Now, if I'm one of David's men at this point I'm going, I'm out. I mean I mean, I'm out. If we're not going to kill him now, when are we going to kill him? And if we're not just going to kill him, are we are, we're just going to wait? For how long? We're going to learn a lot from the life of David in this passage. Because this thing has all the makings of a God thing, doesn't it? Has all the makings of a God thing. And oftentimes when we pray, Our thought is this, and we may even explicitly state this, God, if you want me to do fill in the blank, just open the doors. Just open the doors. And I will boldly, faithfully walk through them. But if we're going to be people who wait well and who follow God in the midst of opportunities, I think one of the things we need to do is understand that an opportunity is not necessarily an invitation from God. An opportunity is not necessarily an invitation from God. That there's oftentimes when our desire and our circumstance coincide to make us think that God is leading us in a certain direction. And the reality is that he isn't. The reality is that he isn't. And see, at some point in all of our lives, and my guess is that you already have been at some point in your life. You'll present. You'll be presented with an open door that is not necessarily an open opportunity. And, and hey, hey, here's the opposite. The opposite's true also. Some some closed doors, God calls you to beat down. The, the, our theology shouldn't say, God, if you want it to happen, just open the door. Because there may be some open doors that you're not called to walk through. And David knows that, understands that. And we're going to talk at the, at, towards the end of this message on how we discern whether or not we go there. But in contrast to all of his men who say, David, this is the time. The Lord has done this. The Lord is leading. This is our God moment. David goes, no, it's not. And I wonder if David, like in the back of his mind, is going, is that really the story I want to tell to my kids? Like, Saul comes in the cave and goes to the bathroom. Saul's on his quote-unquote throne. And I kill him and take his throne. Is that the story I want to tell around campfires for my entire life to my kids and their kids? Saul goes, yeah, or David says, yeah. An opportunity, just because God presents an opportunity doesn't mean he presents an invitation. And for some of you who are uh, high school, college age, and you're dating, you're going to have opportunities to date people. you are probably have opportunities to date a lot of people. It's not necessarily an invitation. An opportunity, yeah. An invitation, no. And we have this ability to, like, compromise and rationalize. Well, I know they're not a follower of Jesus. Yeah, but. But. Oh. If I can just get a hold of them, then they will be. And I need to date them to do that, of course. We get opportunities all the time that aren't invitations. You probably get one in, in the mail every single day in the form of a credit card with a great limit on it. And a horrible interest rate. But, hey, it's an opportunity that isn't necessarily an invitation. Um, I, I was involved in a situation... In a former role where um, we had a a former leader in our church who said, I firmly believe that God wants me to be happy. And I'm not happy in my marriage. And this other woman makes me happy. And an opportunity presented itself. See, every opportunity isn't necessarily an invitation. And oftentimes we just say, okay, open door. Well, then I'm just going to follow. And David says it doesn't work like that. At least not. It doesn't, it doesn't work well like that. Let's look at this, how it continues. Verses five through seven read like this. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift his ha- my hand against him, for he is the Lord's anointed. And I think the next thing we learn from David is this, if we're going to be people who wait well in this sort of in between of, of God providing and God promising, because sometimes there's a gap there, isn't it? God promises something. We read something in his scripture and it sometimes takes some time for him to say, yep, I'm delivering on that promise. If we're going to be people, we need to trust in God's provision to make good on his promises. Trust in God's provision, not yours. And here's a way that this often shows up. This often shows up in timing. In timing. Because God acts slow sometimes, doesn't he? I mean, you're going, come on, can we just speed it up? I know you have eternity, but I don't. This doesn't feel like I do right now. Getting older, come on. Will we trust in God's provision to make good on his promises? There's a a famous passage of scripture that, as I looked at it through this light, started to take on a a whole different meaning to me. If you have a Bible and you want to, flip over to Luke chapter 4. This is where Jesus is um, being tempted in the desert by the devil. And the devil said to him, starting in verse 3, if you are the son of god now now here's the thing. This is not in my notes This is for free, but god will the devil will always try to erode your identity In order to get you to behave in a certain way So the first sort of domino that he wants to get to fall is i'm really not a child of god He hasn't redeemed me. He hasn't made me an heir. He doesn't love me He's not for me. And so that's the way he starts with jesus too Tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it's written, man does not live by bread alone. I thought it was interesting because if you fast forward a few chapters in Luke, what does Jesus do? He takes five loaves of bread and feeds 5,000 people with it. So he's going to do exactly what the devil tempts him to do, but he's just going to do it later. He's going to do it in his time, not the devil's time. And the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you their authority and splendor for I've, it's been given to me. And I can give it to whoever I want. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus said, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Well, well here's the truth of the matter. Friends, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So what Satan wants him to do is step into something that God has promised before he's promised it. Before he's promised it. Let's go number three. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. And they will lift up your hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said, It says, do not put the Lord your God to a test. But what's harder, to throw yourself off a building and to be caught, or to throw yourself up on a cross and rise from the dead? See, every temptation that the enemy holds out in front of Jesus is a temptation of timing, not an essence. He's saying, Will you you trust me enough? God's saying, Will you trust me enough to provide these things that I've said I will provide for you and do for you in the timing that I have for you? And I think that's a question for you and I to wrestle with today, too. It is the question of David and Saul in the cave. See, David understands this is God's promise, but this is not God's provision. And some of you have been asking God that question, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? For a long, long time. And you're about on the verge of saying, hey, we're not there yet, but I'm going to make a way. And I think what he wants to ask us this morning is, will you trust in my provision? And see, here's the truth of the matter, though, is that when our prayer and our passion coincide with opportunity, it's so difficult. To say no it's so difficult to say no I can remember in um, in 2004 uh, if you had a pulse you could buy a house I mean that's sort of the way it went and so um, Kelly and I we got a new job and um, it paid double what we made before now no just contextually before we were living in government subsidized low income housing so we weren't exactly rolling in it, but it felt like we were it felt like we were and so we got offered a zero-down loan. And I mean, it it felt like God had opened the floodgates of heaven's blessing on us. And so I bought a house for less than I bought a Chipotle burrito for. They said, zero down. I said, praise be to God. It was the floodgates of something. It wasn't heaven, though. I think there's a lot of us who are there's there's opportunities that present itself. I, I met with so, I've met with so many college students who have racked up nearly hundred thousand dollars in debt because there's an opportunity. But man, gotta pay that back someday. Will we trust God in His timing? Will we trust Him in His leading? See see here's one of our barometers. Here's one of our barometers. See, people who wait well and follow God well are people who choose to allow integrity to override opportunity. That even when the opportunity presents itself, and I just have to cut a little tiny corner, I think the scriptures ask us, will we be people who do the right thing over the easy thing? And here's the trouble with that, you guys. Here's the trouble with that. Look up at me for just a second. Here's the trouble, is that oftentimes the good thing presents itself before the best thing. And that's the truth. If you look back on your life, my guess is as you've chosen best things, you can look back and you can see good things that presented themselves before best things did. And so we need to have some barometer, some lens to look through in order to make decisions that are going to lead us into life and not death. Because oftentimes the right thing to do is not the easy thing to do. The right way is not the shortest way. And so how do we, what are the ways that we, like David, make decisions that will bring us life and not death? Well, let me look, let me show you what happens in the life of David. And I think the same thing happens in our life as well. Verse 5 says, Afterward, David was conscience stricken. Literally in the Hebrew, it's this idea of like his heart was torn apart. So he cuts the robe of God's anointed and at this point, who knows where David's going? His men don't know. He's snuck up there. They're going, Praise be to God, this is finally over. We don't have to live in outhouse caves anymore. Awesome. Sign us up. And he comes back with a little tassel. And he says, Listen, guys, my heart was torn when I ripped his robe. If I'm his man, I'm going, Well, get over it, David. Here's what I would submit, though. My guess is, as you look back over the course of your life and the bad decisions that you've made, that that God has redeemed, but the bad decisions that you've made is that you have had one of these conscience-stricken moments either before, during, or right after. Where God, in his grace and mercy, said to you, this isn't the way to go. David this isn't the story you want to tell You don't want your kids years and years and years later to hear this story of of saul king saul dying in a cave while He's going to the restroom. David. You don't want to tell that story And his heart Jumps leaps tears inside of him Because god's directing him And here's the thing you have a provision that david doesn't have if you're a follower of jesus You have the holy spirit that lives inside of you friends You have the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. And when we ask him, the book of James says he's faithful to give wisdom. Listen to the way that that James writes this. If any of you lacks wisdom, all right, hey, you got me at that. All right, I'm listening now. He should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. What the scriptures say is, when you ask God for wisdom, trust that he gives it, and then act on it, and then act on it. Trust that he gives it, and then act on it. That's exactly what David does. And it frees him from being captive to just his circumstances and just his opportunities. And he's able to follow God into best rather than just settling for good. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be somebody that, that always settles for good. I want to follow God into best. And sometimes following God into best means saying no to good. And he'll lead us in that. If we'll ask him to, he'll lead us. second thing that David does is he says this. He said to him, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. Hey, translation, that's against the law. For me to kill the Lord's anointed, that's against the law. That's against his word. That's against his commands. I think David is not only saying something that's true, but he's also saying something that's going to benefit him someday. Right? Because he's teaching his men. Hey, no, you don't kill the Lord's anointed. And someday I'm going to be the Lord's anointed. So don't kill me. The Lord's anointed or lift my hand against him for he is the Lord's anointed. Okay. 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 So here's the question When we get into conflict between what we think is the right way and what God thinks is the right way who wins Who wins I mean who wins in your life when you read stuff in this book that you don't necessarily like and you don't necessarily Agree with or that grades against our Progressive culture, who, who wins in that? See, I think what we learn from the life of David, what we learn is that if we're going to be people who follow God into where he leads and who wait well in times in between, is that we need to be people who have integrity that overrides opportunity. I love the way that the great evangelist Billy Graham said it when he said integrity is the glue that holds our way of life together. We must constantly strive to keep integrity intact. When wealth is lost, nothing is lost. When health is lost, something is lost. When character is lost, all is lost. Will we be people who choose the best over the good? The right over the easy? Will we... Will we will we be people who discipline our kids when it's to, easier to just let them run crazy? I mean, am I am I alone in that, or is anybody else just exhausted by the word no? I, mean, I, I just I, some days I want to give myself a timeout to just go screaming to a pillow upstairs, right? All right, we got timeout by me. We I mean me timeout. I'll be back when I'm in a better place. Oh, sorry. It's, did I mention I drove 100 or 1,072 miles in the car? <laughs> One way. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The easy, th- will we choose the right thing over the easy thing? When it's easy to cut corners on our taxes, will we choose the right thing over the easy thing? When it's easy to buy a car that we really can't afford, will we choose the right thing or will we choose the easy thing? I mean, there's so many ways that it applies to our life. I don't know about you, but I want to fight for the joy that God has for me and choosing to pursue him and choosing best over good and best over good is led by us saying to him, we will allow our integrity to override opportunities when those things come into conflict the story Um, concludes this portion of it does. uh, Verses 8 through 13, they read like this. It says, Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul. I mean, wouldn't you love to see this scene? My guess is he waited for Saul to get far enough away so that he couldn't throw a spear at him from there, as was Saul's propensity. And, My Lord the King, he cries. I mean, and it just echoes over the valley. My Lord the King. He bowed down. He prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David's bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he's the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I'm not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Now, if I'm one of David's men, I'm going, never? Like, it'll never touch him? We're going to hire a hitman? Like, what are we going to do? Because you don't become king until he dies. And I think here's what we learn. Is that following God often includes waiting on God. And oftentimes that waiting goes on longer than we would have hoped. God, are you gonna provide that job? Are you gonna provide that relationship? Is the child gonna come back to you? Is the child gonna come home? God, are you gonna are you gonna make a way? And you and I have a have a God, have a father who says, We're not there yet. But will you follow me on the journey? Will what I'm doing in your life be as much about the process, as much about the journey as it is about the destination? That's good. Well, what God does in you in the in-between is just as important as he, where he gets you when the journey is over. I think David understands that. God has some work to do in him. We started off our morning with Psalm 57, and, and I'd invite you to turn over there as we're going to conclude our message here in just a few moments. See, the second, first, and second Samuel tell us the story of, of David's life in many ways, but the psalms really tell us the story of David's heart. The Psalms give us this snapshot into what's going on inside the life of David. And I wrestled with that this week because I want to be the type of person that says no to good in order to say yes to best. I don't want every opportunity to drive my decisions. I want to be someone who trusts in the provision of God to fulfill the promises of God. But the question becomes, how do we really do that? I mean, how do we wait well? Because some of you have been waiting a long time. So how do we do that well? Psalm 57 is a psalm that David wrote as he was on the run. I mean, if you have your Bible, you can look. It says, for the director of music, the very top portion of Psalm 57, to the tune of Do Not Destroy, it's probably sort of a dark song, and when he fled from Saul in the cave. So this is, he wrote this at some point when he's on the run. And in it, he's going to give us some keys that unlock how we become the type of people who wait well. We're going to land the plane here. He says, have mercy on me. Oh God, have mercy on me. For in you, my soul takes refuge. If you have your own Bible, underline, or friends, underline, circle, that word refuge. Means that he's finding solace in God. Means that in the midst of all the outside pressures, this is the place that he goes to sit and rest and be. He says i will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the day of disaster has passed i cry out to god most high to god who fulfills his promises for me you see david's trust in the midst of chaos God, I know that you have plans for me, and I know that you're fulfilling them, and I don't get why my time in the desert is a part of those plans, God, but I trust that you are good even in the desert, and I trust that in the desert you're going to do what you have set out to do in me. And it stings, and it hurts, and I don't like it, and I want to cry out, are we there yet? But I trust that you're good in that. And you see people who wait well, rest in God's sovereignty. God, we understand that you're in charge. And we don't necessarily like what you're doing, but we trust that you fulfill your purposes for us. My circumstance will not determine what I think about my God. The length of time that I wait will not determine what I think about his goodness and his mercy and his love towards me. Listen to the way that he goes on says, he sends from heaven, and he here is, is God. He sends from heaven, and he saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. Selah. He's like, just I'm going to just rest in that for a moment. In the cave, I'm going to rest in the fact that God is sovereign, and that he will accomplish his purpose, his plan, and he's going to save. He's going to save. God sends his love and his faith. See, here's the, here's the truth of the matter is that there, is, there are probably a lot of people in here where you're in that, God, are we there yet? And the question that's starting to stir in your soul or maybe has been stirring for months or years or decades is, God, do you love me in this? Because it feels like you've just left me. It feels like you're distant and you're silent and I'm in the desert and God, how are you working in that? I don't get it. And what David writes is, oh, God sends his love and his faithfulness. I think that's a word for somebody in here today. Is that God is sending his love and his faithfulness to you in the in-between, in the waiting. He's not waiting for you to arrive at whatever destination you think it is that will provide fulfillment and happiness and satisfaction for you. He's providing it right now if you'll receive it. see, we only wait well in the in-between in the, God, are we there yet moments of life when we realize that he's sovereign and that he loves us. In verses 4 and 5, he continues, I'm in the midst of lions. I lie amongst ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are like spears and arrows. A subtle reference to Saul whose tongues are sharp swords, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. So in the middle of this chaos, in the middle of the caves, in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the wandering and the wandering, he says, God, you be exalted. You be lifted high. And in this moment of freedom, he's able to take his eyes off of his circumstances alone and point them up and see that there's something bigger going on. And so his prayer becomes, God, you get glory in this. Not necessarily in in me becoming king or the anointed or in the end of the journey, but God, you get glory in the in-between, in the middle. And I think if we're going to be people who wait well, we need to be people also like David who live for God's glory. Even as we wait, even as we wait, it ends and they spared a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they've fallen into themselves. My heart is steadfast. O God, my heart is steadfast. So I will sing and I will make music awake. My soul awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you. O Lord among the nations. He's in a cave he's wondering which way's up he's running for his life he is dying and he says i'm going to praise you i'm going to worship you among among the nations i'm going to praise your name because you're good and you're sovereign and you love me for great is your love reaching to the heavens your faithfulness that reaches to the sky I don't know about you, but I want to be the type of person that trusts God enough to not just seize every opportunity, but to discern where he leads. Who trusts God enough to allow the integrity that he sunk into our soul through the Holy Spirit to guide us, not just opportunities that present themselves. I want to trust that God will be good in providing and making provision for the promises that he's made to us. I don't know about you, but I want to be the type of person that lives in the in-between well enough that I'm shaped for whatever destination he takes me to. And he ends by saying, I'm going to praise you, I'm going to worship you, and I'm going to find satisfaction in you, God." not in my circumstances, but in you. See, you and I, we have a, we have a benefit that David never had. See, David knew God's love. He knew God's love, but you and I, we have the chance to know the extent of God's love. We get to understand that God's, that God's love does not end at circumstances, that it transcends those circumstances. We have a love. We, we know that God has a love for us, friends. That we can look to. We can look to the cross at any point in time. At any point in our life, and know that God has not taken His hand off of us. To know that He's for us, to know that He cares for us, to know that His love will not let us go. Not height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you, follower of Jesus, you from the love that He has for you. And so in the in-between, in the, are we there yet? I think he's inviting us to keep our eyes on the provision that he's already made to redeem our souls and invite us into relationship with him. That just like David writes, we will be people who in the in-between, in the deserts, in the caves, in the valleys, and also in the mountaintops, that we will trust in the goodness, God, of your love to us. And what better way? to respond to that than by celebrating his table this morning. Because in it, he declares, I'm for you even when you're not for me. And I love you enough to give myself for you. And as we come up in a few moments, I'm going to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to come up. If you're not a follower of Jesus, the Bible says that if you put your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins, if you trust in him to forgive your sins, he will. And he'll make you a child of God, exchanging your sin for his righteousness, your depravity for his holiness.